Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. First, I have to say, wow, last week the podcast set a record for downloads. It appears that everyone came out of the holidays ready to learn. Whatever your motivation, thank you for your support and interest in this podcast. Before I get to today's episode, I want to share what the podcast content will look like over the first half of the year. We, and when I say we, I mean you and me, we will be exploring three big themes. These themes are value-based care, artificial intelligence, and robotics. I believe these three areas will have a major impact on healthcare and medtech going forward. I have been working hard to round up guest experts in these areas. However, if you know someone I should consider as a guest speaker, let me know. And I'm serious. Use the contact link in the show notes or message me via LinkedIn or the MedTech Leaders community. Of course, there will be some other subject matter experts and in the C-suite guests mixed in. And due to the difficulty scheduling guests, the themes will be a bit mixed up in order of publication. So one week you might get value-based care, like this week, and the next it might be artificial intelligence and followed by an episode on robotics. Today's episode is the first of several episodes on value-based care, and I'm calling it Intro to Value-Based Care Part 1. Our guest for both Part 1 and Part 2 is Barbara Strain, principal of Barbara Strain Consulting. Prior to her recent move into consulting, Barbara was the Director of Supply Chain Analytics and then later Director of Value Management at the University of Virginia Health System. So she has lived the history of DRGs, bundles, and value-based care. Barbara is going to give us a foundation on this subject, so we will be better prepared for guest speakers from a hospital system, physician practices, and from industry. Here is a factoid from today's conversation. The sickest 5% of the U.S. population consumes 50% of healthcare resources. This is one of the many reasons fee-for-service is not sustainable and that the move to value-based care is gaining momentum. Understanding this important subject is part of knowing your customer. By the way, Barbara is a member of the MedTech Leaders community, a place for MedTech leaders and sales and marketing professionals to help each other out and learn from each other and from subject matter experts. Several people joined last week. A warm welcome to all of you. You can learn more at medtechleaders.net. There is a free trial, and the annual cost is equal to about three or four cups of artisanal coffee, depending on how big the cup is you drink. Now, let's move on to an enlightening conversation with Barbara Strain as we tackle the history of value-based care, the current status, and start to understand how it affects medtech.
Barbara, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. It's really great to have you here today. And I'm really looking forward to what you're going to share with us about value-based care. Well, thanks, Ted. It's a great honor to be invited to be on your podcast. I've actually been secretly, you know, saying maybe he can ask me, pick me, because, you know, <laughs> I've, I've been around the block a few times, so I think I probably have a few things to share. Thanks, Ted. Oh, you're welcome. You you have a lot to share, and I know that. And so for listeners and viewers, um, I got to know Barbara because we participate in a series of webinars called the MedTechSperts. And uh, that went on all last year, if not a little bit longer, and we've um, gotten to know each other that way. And I've come to really appreciate what she does, which we're going to learn about right now. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what you do now, what your role is at your consulting firm, and a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, It's always fun to kind of learn how in the world did you get here, right? Uh, The where's Waldo type thing. So I retired two years ago after 41 years in a couple of different provider organizations and knew that I wasn't just going to, you know, hang up my calculator or computer or whatever and, and walk into the sunset. I still felt I had a lot to give to healthcare. And so being a consultant of one as an independent consultant, I say I'm a healthcare value consultant because I want everybody, whether they're a supplier, uh, early adopter, manufacturer, a service provider, a provider in a, a hospital or other healthcare situations, we have a lot to do to get to better healthcare. And so I felt that I could bring that sort of value equation. How do we continue to get value? What really makes up value? So my journey started, uh, I'm a, a licensed medical technologist. I started in clinical laboratories. Uh, I did chemistry. I love to troubleshoot equipment. I did some blood bank, but my heart kind of resided in microbiology. Um, So I did that for about 20 years. So I set up a couple of virology labs, did uh, healthcare um, management of microbiology, and then participated in uh, GPOs and uh, safety and a variety of things. And then when... um, the institution I was working at, an academic medical st- uh, uh, organization, they now put together their own supply chain department. And so the person they got to lead that said, I need somebody with some sort of clinical background, nurse, respiratory, lab, whatever it is, is because they're the ones that are going to help make things happen in a certain way and make those connections with clinical folks and and others so we can really do better at supply chain, but overall helping the organization. So thus was born my value analysis career. Uh, In 2004, I was one of the founding members uh, and then of the Association of Healthcare Value Analysis Professionals and went on to be a president at one time and 
lots of different committees and things. And currently I'm their strategic board advisor. And so we've brought on um, affiliate members, which are uh, suppliers, as well as a variety of folks in um, healthcare provider institutions, and really broadening people's mindset about value analysis. So hence, uh, when I was doing my lab work, you have to pay attention to reimbursement and what goes into that and how we can create margin by doing better. And this was back in the late 80s and 90s when we were doing this. And then the government started um, sort of mandating some things, trying to make it sound, you know, sort of voluntary. So I got really, really interested in how could we help to get to value-based care and a variety of things. So that's kind of where I am today and, and how I got here. Right. No, that's great. And I think what is... Um... So, and you were at the University of Virginia, right? Yes, I was, University of Virginia okay. Health. Okay. And I think that's sort of what's interesting because what, you know, we're going to talk and just for uh, uh, listeners and viewers, we're going to start off with the history of uh, value-based care. Where, where did it really start? And what's really cool is that Barbara was at the advent of this history and was experiencing at her hospital and was pulled right into it. And so she's experienced the whole thing. So that's really cool. So we're going to talk a little bit about history, but as we're talking about history, some of the things that have developed in history are still applicable now. And mm -hmm. so you need to know about them and uh, for certain providers and certain health systems, but then we're going to move into um, a greater explanation of value-based care and where that's going. And through this, we'll also touch on value analysis because, you know, that's really what you, you do really specialize in that, helping companies with that. And that's a, a key thing to succeeding uh, when you're trying to sell product to these large um, ecosystems, health, healthcare ecos ecosystems. So let's go back because I think it's a great segue into the history. And you, you sort of told me a sort of a fun story about you're at the hospital and- right you get approached and this is this approach by one of the executives is what pulls you into this whole new part of your career. Right. So um, the whole affordable care act and all of that, that sort of um, descended upon healthcare in the 2010 timeframe uh really sort of shocked the whole healthcare world. And it really pertained to acute care, inpatient hospitals, Medicare, CMS. It went to uh, reimbursement, quality care, that whole thing. And when um, I was walking down the hall, so I knew about all this and was starting to to, I, I'm one of those people that will never stop learning. So I'm learning on my own and that sort of thing. And um, the equivalent of a COO in a hospital, everybody has different titles for these folks. So as associate vice president of, you know, all this stuff. But the equivalent of a CEO, we're actually passing each other in the, in the cafeteria where all good conversations happen in a hospital. And he stopped and he goes, Barbara Strain, he said, 
I need you to work full time on value analysis because you need to help us get to where we need to be because all of this Affordable Care Act is really hitting us. And I said, yes, sir. You know, what are you going to say? Right. So I had ideas and things. And and he said, we're putting, you know, together some teams and I want to talk to you about all this. And um the thing that really happened was my administrator came to me and said, whatever else I have you doing, you're going to focus full time on value analysis and you can have whatever resources you need. What people do you need? What sort of you know data do you need? Any of that sort of stuff. It was like happy dance time for a value analysis person because <laughs> we kind of were slogging it through, kind of you know on our own and that sort of thing. So but it's, all, it's pretty- also sort of like they waved a magic wand and poof, there's a value analysis um, committee or, or team, and you know, right. out of like nowhere, it just happened. Right. We had been doing it since 1997 at that institution. I was the first person, Department of One, for a very long time. And you can only do so many things as an individual um, working at the sort of manager level and that sort of thing. You can do a lot of standardizing. You can, you know, work on projects at a time. You start working on a little bit of, you know, practice mixed with products or services, and you kind of, you know, uh, limp through a variety of savings on this and that and things. And then pretty soon little, little things start to happen that with having a structure in place allows you to sort of uh, move things along a lot quicker. Okay. okay. And so, yeah. so now you've got this, um, this approval and the support from your, or from the, from the university of Virginia and you are also able to get some resources, maybe some additional people to help you out. So let's, again, when we look at the history, uh, what you sort of said it started around in earnest around 2010 and when this is all happening to you, what was CMS's role in this? Well, CMS was like the whole coordinator sort of oversight because it really traced back to Medicare Mm -hmm. and how can we do better quality, affordable care. So you're looking at that quality piece, the dollar piece, and we needed to do something. And what I usually sort of say is it's terrible that we actually had to have government tell us how we really should have been doing things all along. It just shouldn't be an open checkbook, you know, and and how we were really um, doing medicine. We we're all doing great work, but were we getting the right outcomes and were we doing it as effectively, efficiently and financially being good stewards of all of the system and things? So it, it was interesting because in, you heard the rumbling of what was probably going to come down once it was approved in 2010. So you started hearing things in 2008, 2009. So our leadership decided that supply chain 
was probably going to help to be involved in all of this going forward, uh, regardless if you were really doing all the, you know, Affordable Care Act, different things, supply chain was one of those areas that hadn't really been totally explored as what are we really doing? Are we organized correctly? Are we doing all the things that we need to write? Are those products coming in based on, you know, someone's whim and someone saying, ooh, I really want these. Because when I first started in that uh, late 1990s, walking into the storeroom, I remember that a whole roll was nothing but gloves. Every different style, uh, company, uh, material they were made out of, all that sort of thing. I said, how did all these things get here? And it's because someone said, ooh, we really like these. And so when we're doing this, really want them. So we really weren't using our financial and other resources effectively. Oh, and yeah. that just set you up for different care levels, right? I remember early in my career, and I'd probably have to say to everybody that those are the easy days of selling into the operating room. Um, you would just get a, a surgeon to sign um, or to f- help you fill out a, a preference card. And you just took that to the operating room supervisor mm-hmm. and it was like, okay, you know, and, and they would, <laughs> they would get it for him or her. And, um, you know, today it's not nearly like that at all, no, but um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite but, different, but. yeah. So just, just to let you know and how things can happen and why it, it's good things is in 2008, Uh, leadership decided we were going to sort of revamp and look at supply chain. Maybe we're doing it right. Maybe we're not. So um, I was very involved at the time, whether it was value analysis or wearing a supply chain operations hat or whatever it was. And so they brought in some consultants, but the consultants weren't healthcare consultants. They were consultants in supply chain globally. So they did mining operations and other different types of business, but supply chain was supply chain. And what that really did is it put us into teams. It gave us structure. And when their engagement was up, they only did an engagement for like 11 months and so many days, and they guaranteed a certain dollar level. So they set us up with this great structure, but when they left, leadership didn't say, gee, thanks a lot. We saved this much money. As they said, now we need to transfer every the coordination of everything we learned and keep it going. And that was the day the administrator came into my office and says, tag, you're it. Yeah, this okay. is now <laughs> going to be assigned to you. And I'm, you know, I literally wasn't surprised because it made a lot of sense, not just because it was me, but where we were all situated and what we were doing. So I rolled up my sleeves and then really took off. And I knew we were onto something when the cardiology lead of their team said, this is the way we should have been doing business all along. We really need to look at what we're doing, why we're doing it. Do we have a need to fill? All those sorts of things. So when we got to 2010, that approval was stamped and signed. And the 
the CEO stopped me, uh, we'd already had a really good base. Yeah. So we went from saving on our own with various initiatives and things somewhere around a $3 million a year average. Wow. And that jumped up to about an 8 million, 9 million average. Once you get leadership involved and it's a strategic part of your plan and it's a tactic and you have goals. Sound familiar? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> You're making fun of my of our last couple sessions at MedTech Experts, and also my I'm last not couple podcasts. Making fun of you at all? I was the <laughs> geeky one along there with you because yeah, you were. That's, yeah, that's the way we roll, you know. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, go ahead. So, so where do um, where does the term what is the term bundle, and how does that relate to the early history, and you know who's impacted by bundles, and are they still in effect? Right. So just a slight bit more of history. So, you know, where bundles kind of fit in. Good. So the Affordable Care Act had lots of parts and pieces to it. So it wasn't just like one thing. And so uh, the triple aim kind of sums it up where you have um, improving population health, enhancing patient experience, reducing your all your costs. And then um if we went to the quadruple aim, which is also the providers, you need right. to protect against burnout and all that sort of thing. But you had, you know, accountable care organizations come up during this time. You have value-based purchasing. You had insurance marketplaces. And everything became evidence-based care. So... Um, it was very interesting because bundles then came into being the first one went into place in 2016 with planning and baselines and things done in that 2014-13-14 time frame and things. And so this is another one of the, the CMS um, projects and the first bundle uh, these are care bundles. So this one was the uh, joint uh, reconstruction bundle, so primary hips and knees. And uh, what they really laid out is uh, you're going to go ahead and you're going to do the procedures the way you normally do them, and you're going to build them, and you're going to know how much you're spending but at the end of a 90-day period, and I'll tell you what happens in those 90 days, and after you submit all that, then we're going to look at a target that you should have been hitting. And if you were below that target, we're going to reimburse you more money. If you're over the target, you're going to pay us some money more. So what the target was is over a 90-day period, which started when you got admitted for your surgery, but it even really starts in pre-surgery. So you have to have physicians, um, outpatient care, uh, rehab, manufacturers, everybody on board rowing, you know, in the same direction. And they chose, and um, I think it was 65 different regions, they 
chose. And by the time we got to 2021, the fifth year of this program, they had 400 and some of these programs that were doing bundles. And so in pre-surgery, you're going to really make sure of doing things like demand matching. Are you going to have the right implant for the health and the, you know, exercise activity level and weight and age and all that kind of stuff for your actually implants, but are you having them go to a, um, a boot camp to learn about everything that's going to happen during their surgery, how they're going to recover all of the, um, uh, rehab that has to be done and exercise and that sort of thing. And after a 90 day arc, as you go through that whole thing and all of your care, you should be at a level that your activity that you thought you would have, you have. And so they made some, you know, uh, risk stratifications in the bundles because everybody isn't always the exact same. Right. And they did it by regions because some regions may have different populations than others, like snowbirds who go to Florida and a variety of things. So depending on your region and your risk stratification and things, that total dollar mark you should be hitting was slightly different. But the whole thing was um, the same guidelines. So the bundle, uh, well, the bundle is like a, it's a, um, it's all the elements of taking of, care mm -hmm. of like a hip from right. beginning to end. It's that whole bundle of right all the visits, so, all the costs, mm -hmm. all the materials, yeah. the surgeon's right. fee, all that stuff together. Everything. Okay. Yeah. Everything. And um, so they put a report out every year to say, here's how it worked. And they said, it basically, there are simple reports. Uh, and matter of fact, before I even get to the end, all of the acronyms and things we're talking about, I'm putting in a list that you can post or do something with, however you would get some of that information out. I'll put it, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. And yeah. in the uh, and in the med tech leaders community, I'll actually make it like a PDF file and attach it, and so people right. can just download it. Yeah, yeah, because there's lots of acronyms. But if I spend hours in these databases and all of this when I work with clients, uh, either providers or uh, suppliers, so I can give up to date information. So I want to be able to do all that. But uh, what really happened is. They had success. Some of it was not statistically significant success, but they still had success. So CMS then came out with, I think it's 33 or 34 additional bundles over the last five years, cardiac bundles, neurology, and a couple of other um, care bundles. and. They all have not done extremely well when you read sort of through the reports. And these were the ones that were chosen in the regions. Now, there were a lot of organizations that said, well, if it's good enough for those regions and organizations, 
we should at least try to look at all those things and see what we could do as well. So I remember that one of the things we did is the orthopedics uh, folks did a whole review of everything and said, you know, if we had specific orthopedic trained nurses for the unit in which patients went to immediately following surgery, and then we had a whole bundle of practice like, you know, the icing and getting them up after just, you know, an hour or so and a variety of things, what would that look like? And so they were able to go to administration and say, this is what we want to do. And they put together a whole pro forma and things. And they wound up doing this turnkey program and they wound up reducing their length of stay by almost a whole day just by following these things. So you went from maybe a three point something day or whatever to a two point something day, and they kept working on those. So whether or not you were part of a program like that or not, that's a direction that we all need to take in healthcare. So when you're looking at those specific DRGs, that they made for all of these different procedures. So they have a whole listing of, you know, right and left. And if you had this condition or whatever, so there's sub uh, uh, DRGs in the 469, 470 series, um, then you could be billing appropriately. And then you have to, so you gather the idea that is really a lot based on data, data, data. And so this is the part where we're at now where we all have so much data. And this is where AI and bots and all of these things are just extremely helpful at this point. But it helps that whole insurance and reimbursement piece as well. So you have participation by all these different levels, government through the CMS and making it sort of uh, mandatory for these areas so they'd have really good demonstration projects. You have the physicians, uh, which, you know, take a, a little bit of convincing sometimes only because they were trained. They were, you know, they lived the, the practice that they had and what did they really need to do differently? There's a lot of things that have come along, um, including um, uh, one of the suppliers actually came out with uh, an, a knee implant that actually has um, a tracker in it, that a battery that'll last about eight to 10 years. And this was just announced and the first one was put in just a few weeks ago. Um, that you can see how much movement a patient has afterwards. And it goes right to, you know, uh, a phone, an app on your phone. And the physician can kind of see how they're doing, how are they coming along and that sort of thing. So pretty soon everything's going to be able to be monitored and stuff. But this whole thing about bundles just gives you the idea of, how you need to put together your care, wherever the setting is. And it kind of goes to the fact that not all of the care 
is or should be received in the most expensive place, which is the hospital, which really goes to value-based care. So this was how we were getting there through a lot of different programs. So like within the bundle, you know, you've got the, for example, we were talking about hips. So you've got Mm -hmm. the cost of a hip, you've got the, uh, the physician or the surgeon's fees, you've got the cost of the nurses, you've got the cost of all the overhead, uh, all that. Yeah. All that Mm -hmm. stuff. So does that mean like the, uh, surgeon is agreeing that he, that his part of the bundle is going to cost this much for this Medicare patient? And are they, and they're sort of negotiating with the hip company that, you know, uh, for this particular bundle, this is all we're going to pay you for a hip implant and a hip company sort of has to agree. Is that sort of what's going on? And as they well, come to, as they figure out what all their costs are so that they can try to win the bundle, win the, you know, come out at the end with either no loss or some additional money in their pocket. That's the gist of it. So this is why there were so many initiatives and still are today of trying to get the costs of implants sort of under control in general. Um, And what I say in value analysis, when I talk to folks about doing some of these sort of what we call higher on the maturity curve of value analysis, different programs, is you really have to look at your margins and a variety of things. We did that anyway before bundles and things came along. But when we first started, um, the first initiatives we did, we didn't get a lot of savings because we didn't have a lot of buy-in yet from surgeons or chairs of orthopedic departments or whatever. And so the two things that have to intersect is executive buy-in to how all of this should work. And then their support of these programs to work with either departments or uh, private surgeons or however your hospital is set up in order to get sort of that buy-in of we're going to work with suppliers and are you going to do a, you know, a capitated construct? Are you going to do uh, pricing just on parts and pieces? What are you really looking for? And so we went from somewhere around uh, $7,000 or more for a knee down to the the mid to low 2000s. Wow. Okay. But it wasn't like yesterday. You couldn't do it in a short period of time. You have to make alignments of all those things I just talked about in order to get there. But once you get there, the chair of orthopedics, again, in the cafeteria, walking from one place to the (laughs) next, he goes, that was really a good meeting. And I really like this process. We're going to do more of this. Again, this is when you do happy dances. I also had a neurosurgeon who said, I can really use anything. We just need to work together to make sure that if I have a certain patient that has a certain condition, there are certain things that work better for a better outcome than others. And as long as I have, you know, a little bit of latitude percent wise or whatever, 
then that'll work. So it's, it's nurturing relationships and having, you know, executive buy-in and not everybody, you know, sings the same song at the same time. And and you're going to have issues and things, but um, that's what value analysis professionals really work at are those relationships. And then having everyone sort of communicate and understand what what are we doing? How do we do this business? What are our needs are? Okay. So going back to the bundle for just a couple more yep. comment, a couple more minutes. Let's say uh, the Rothman Institute here at Jefferson, you know, the Jefferson Health System here in Philadelphia. <clears throat> Let's say they've agreed that a hip, a total hip on a certain kind of patient um, is going to be, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars. I don't know if that's correct or not, but let's just, no, let's, but that's okay. <laughs> let, let's just say a hundred thousand dollars. And they, and that's what the bundle is going to be. And they get out to 90 days and the total cost for this patient has really only been $90,000. Um, what happens if they're under like that? So if they were one of the official uh, CMS program under that bundle, they would get money back depending on how much reimbursement they'd already gotten back. Got it. Because you're submitting your regular reimbursement and then you square up at the end. So if you think about it, it's one of the first sort of examples of risk-based contracts, if you will. Um, and the government was the one entering into those with you. Okay. Okay. And then, um, so where is, so we've, so a lot of this started out with bundles to try, and obviously they probably focused on certain specialties because the costs were so high and that was right. an easy place to focus, right? So where where do you think um, value-based care is today? Where, where have we gone from those very first bundles? And then you said they added more bundles as time went on. You know, where do you think we are today with value-based so, care? Well, value-based care... That's a we'll ha, we'll have that discussion in a little bit. So okay. let's finish with the bundles. Bundles okay. was just one of a variety of things that were in there. So we're going to talk a little bit about value-based purchasing before we finished up value-based care, if that's okay. Yeah, and and I guess the other thing that I want to point out to people is that the bundle system still exists today in most places. Correct. Yeah, the okay. the five years was up actually this past September 30th, 2021. Okay. So I went online before we went live today to make sure what was really going on. And they have uh, extended it for, I believe it's another three years till 2024. And they have made some adjustments to some of the pricing and, and that sort of thing. So um People that do, uh, you know, contract negotiation with, you know, insurance firms and um, others within finance uh, know about all these things way ahead of time. They monitor all these things in provider organizations. And one of the things about me saying about resources that I'm going to give is because manufacturers should also have somebody internally that's monitoring a variety of the things that either we've already talked about or we're going to talk about. 
because it makes a difference depending on what business that manufacturer's in. So they can have good conversations to understand where their providers are in their whole arc of are you fee-for-service or are you value-based care? And what sort of percent are, are you going? Because in fee-for-service, which we've been under for a long time, is the more services you provide, the more you can bill, but it doesn't have anything to do with outcomes. Where right. value-based care is outcomes. So any of these sort of factors we're going to talk about has to do with outcomes and being rewarded for outcomes. And, the, and so, I think yeah. the point that I just want to make sure everybody understands is, um, and even international listeners or uh, the international audience in your countries, your many countries are way ahead of us on this. Yes. So you're already working in a, a system that we, that would be similar to what we call value-based care here. But in the United States, um, everybody, everybody probably has a, a product that's part of one of these bundles somewhere along the line and mm -hmm. is having an impact on the whole um, cost relationship to the provider, to the hospital system that you're trying to serve. Um, and that, and that's where being a good steward as a manufacturer and a partner to a hospital ecosystem is so important that you help the, you, you have to meet your objectives, but you're not going to meet your objectives unless the hospitals meet theirs. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's yeah. chicken, egg and all that sort of thing. Right. So it, it's really critical for them to really understand reimbursement is difficult enough to understand. Right now, there's um, when I work with clients, there's various things we talk about, but it's always that sort of reimbursement piece and others that is not real clear, uh, no matter what, you know, even providers don't quite understand it and why you have to have, you know, get experts that actually work for you or have very savvy uh, CFOs and they have um, very good individuals in a lot of those different departments that they might have, or they have third-party folks that they might hire. But why the, the hip and knee joints and cardiology are the bundles that CMS put together first is 56% of the healthcare spending is spent on folks that are 55 years of age or older. So if you look at what they're going to actually have go wrong, yep. you know, I ran into someone at the grocery store looking at turkeys and um, hadn't seen them in a while. And they go, yeah, and I'm having a knee replacement, you know, and or I'm I, my hip's doing pretty well, you know, or that kind of stuff. Luckily, knock on wood, why I have a wooden desk is in our family, we all have all of our joints, native joints still left <laughs> and things like that. But so you have to look at so much data and geographic and demographic data and a variety of things. So when you're a manufacturer, you need to understand all those dynamics and not just say, I've got the greatest products in sliced bread. Everybody in the US really needs this. And now I'm going to, you know, go out and try to sell this. And we're 
much more educated on the provider side after having gone through so many of these programs over the last, it'll be, you know, 12 years next year, which is only in about a week and a half. And um, so we ask more questions. We expect more uh, information about that to come forth in those presentations and value propositions and things like that. So trying to work that in. So you, a minute ago, you said before we leap into value-based care, you want, you had an intermediate position you wanted to talk about. Yeah. So a really big portion of the affordable care act was value-based purchasing. Uh And this is, you know, strictly they, they put, um, healthcare into four domains, and they started out slow by saying you you need to sort of do really well, like ten percent in this domain and so much percent in this one, working towards um, full like twenty five percent in each of these four domains. They also did what this did is. They used baseline data and every one of the four domains, which are clinical outcomes, uh, person and community engagement, and that's like your HCAPs and that sort of thing. Safety, which they call all of the healthcare acquired um, infections and conditions and you know MRSAs, all those sorts of things. And then efficiency and cost reduction. So your Medicare uh, spending per beneficiary. Those are the four domains. And so and when, you, when, there, you, when you talk about those percentages, you mean percentage uh, lower in cost or in improvement? Right. Okay. And what they do is they have a baseline for all of the data they collected. Then they would have a performance period, which was usually two years, They've now knocked some of those down to one year. And then after the two years of performance compared to the baseline, then the next two years out, then they withhold payment for Medicare patients by certain percent. So like readmissions, which is in one of those domains, uh, they all, which is another care uh, attribute, they withhold a larger amount of money up to like 3%. And in some of these other domains like safety, they withhold 1%. So in a lot of hospitals, if your Medicare population is very large, that's many millions of dollars that are withheld. And the only way you earn them back is if you have better uh, quality or whatever the um, uh, break point is in the care for each of these domains, if you do better than X, which is either in the composite, you might do better than all your other peers in a certain level, or you do better in certain, we have uh, baseline sort of uh, decimals, you know, like 0.8 and 0.9, and if you do better, then you earn money back in that particular subdomain type thing. So if you have MRSA and you're doing really bad, but you're doing pretty good in the others, 
you may earn a little bit of money back, but not all of it. So let's so, say on a on mm-hmm. a certain on a certain piece of care, the reimbursement was a hundred dollars. The government might only give the provider ninety eight dollars and ninety seven dollars of that reimbursement, and they're holding the the last three, and they're saying we'll we'll look at the end of the year, and if you meet this domain thing. Will, you'll get the last three back or mm-hmm. you, might not, you might not get it back. You'll be penalized. Right. Okay. Right. <clears throat> so that was one of the big reasons why value analysis became very important because you want to be able to be on all of those quality teams that got put together. Like yep. we had 90 day sprints. So we had physicians and radiologists and lab people, value analysis, respiratory care, uh, bedside nurses, you know, whatever it was on these groups. And we would go through all these lean exercises to say, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? You know, all the whys and that sort of thing when you do A3s. And so you'd get to the point where somebody finally go, I don't know why we do that. Why do we do that? Nobody could figure out why. So let's go do the right thing, right? And what is that? So we went through a variety of exercises and because you need to see those levels of clabsies and cauties and all those infections go down because then you know you have an opportunity to get those monies back because everything in hospitals And that expensive building is about margin, especially for the nonprofits, because that's how you get the dollars to pay for capital. That's how you you make sure that you're going to get your um, uh, triple bond ratings and a variety of things. How good are you at managing your finances and stuff? But you also have to have that care because CMS also has their their care programs that you can look at. And that's where the stars kind of come in. You know, the five stars is really great. And if you've got one, oh my God, you'd need to do better. And they have all these different categories uh, for those uh, care domains. And so there's all kinds of information, but I'm going to say this one website right now because all of the things we talked about, most of them are at data, D-A-T-A dot C-M-S dot gov. And there's 69 data sets that talk through all of these. And when you click on it, you go right to those data sets. And there are even uh, CSV files that you can download and sort and do all kinds of things. So is it not only good for public, they also have some a lot of public facing sites. So you can determine, do I want to go there for care, right? Yeah. Or for providers to look at either how their system's doing or how they're comparing to others, because you could put a bunch of them together and say, how do I compare? So it's called care compare. And then manufacturers, suppliers, people who are looking at the next new thing should be saying, well, look, all of these hospitals and things, when I sort it, have really bad scores, say, when it comes to HAPU or HAPI, depending on what they're calling it, injuries or, or pressure ulcers these days. But 
If it is, that's why you see so many companies that have all of these apps and all of these, uh, you know, uh, surfaces for your beds and all of these uh, computer things and help patients and stuff, because those scores are the ones that really haven't come down enough where a lot of those other quality scores have really improved. Okay. So um, this is where companies get a lot of their intel. And, and, um, but you have to really dig through it and, and really look at it. And don't assume every provider you go to has that problem. That's why you have to look at what am I looking at on the provider side? Who did really well? Well, if I have a, a say nothing but wound care products and it's going to help X, Y, and Z, but this whole group of hospitals has great wound care, I'm going to start working on the ones maybe I don't have and then see if maybe I can get some standardization or whatever on the ones that are doing really well, things like that. Okay. And so um, talking about this, these domains where you're trying to improve either costs and or, or, or results. And let's, you know, when I was reading, I don't know if it was, I think it was Becker hospital. I saw a summary and, and for listeners uh, and viewers, everybody should subscribe to Becker hospitals, daily news, and just skim it because you can, you can learn a lot by, you know, say you might see something that applies to you or you might see something interesting, some data, but I thought I saw something like it was either 2,500 or 2,800 hospitals were penalized this past year. Yep. And so is that what they were penalized on? Because they did. That's what they were penalized on. Okay. It was 2,856. I do believe was the number. And I think they combined readmission penalties as well as uh, the domain penalties as well, because there are complication penalties and there's readmission penalties. So there's a variety of these things that you got to pay attention to. So some of the first questions besides uh, since COVID asking for what are your capacity to provide your product and what happened during COVID and do you have raw materials issues or sustainability, they're really going to ask, I have a problem, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Provider in X, you know, MRSA, surgical site infection, whatever it is, what is your product going to do for me? What are you really going to guarantee? Can we do a risk thing, share about it? All of those sorts of things. Because if you come at them and say, I know you're having a problem with HAPUs. I actually had to say this to someone. I said, well, we've been working on it for the past four years and we've got it down to one. So unless you can significantly decrease one that may not get much more, you know, savings or get money back or whatever. Um, I don't have a lot of skin in this game right now. And then they keep continuing trying to sell you on a, on a product, but we're all getting very wiser and we've gotten some really great, um, programs that have been suggested to a variety of um, 
value analysis and other stakeholders. And sometimes it actually might come from the stakeholder, you know, and companies are thinking a lot differently now and things. Okay. So we've gone through those domains. We're talking about uh, value-based purchasing, which is, which affects one of those domains for sure. Maybe a couple of them. Um, and then is it time to move to value? I guess one thing before we move to value-based care, I guess a question I would like to ask is, you know, why is, it's sort of common sense, but why is fee for service not sustainable? So it's not sustainable for a lot of different reasons, one of which is insurance wise, because different payers, that whole, it's really a conundrum about what you're really going to be reimbursed. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever seen a hospital bill, uh, <laughs> there is so much markup, overhead, whatever. And you, you're. this is why they had to do, we have to get to transparency in pricing because it was just outlandish. And the payments either out of people's pockets or by payers was just really out of control. But you keep expending all of the services. So you're using all of your resources. So think of what's happening with COVID right now. They are pulling out every possible, you know, ventilators, all kinds of setups of IVs and drugs and then the consequences of being in the hospital and then all of the PPE and the the human resources that are going into doing all the care and everything like that is that if you kept up the types of services and you only had sick care and you weren't paying attention to well care, it just gets out of control. To the point that you see now with COVID, they're taking up 20%, 25%, sometimes more, depending on where you are in that cycle of the, the latest outbreak of ICU beds. And a lot of acute care beds have been uh, transposed into ICU beds. However, You don't have all of the trained ICU nurses or the other care that's going on that's needed at that level. And people are getting so burned out. And it's just a, you just can't live that way. Now, when COVID, hopefully we get under control at some point, we've been saying this now, it'll be two years very soon. Uh, this still may come back and come back and come back. And so it could just be we put up, you know, a COVID hospital and, you know, in regions, who knows what's going to happen. But if you continue to go back for this fee for service, you'll just keep exhausting resources. You, you've seen what not having silicone has been like over the last weeks. It's been terrible as back orders, you have the the outdated container saga. You have the all the ships at sea saga. You have raw materials. You have people that can't work in factories because they're sick in the hospitals. It's just a conundrum. It's just not sustainable because it's not based on outcomes. 
is based on all the services you provide. So sometimes do you hedge and say, you know, let's send them for an MRI. Do they really need an MRI? Do you have, you know, sort of a, 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 a roadmap of saying, if this, 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 then we do an MRI. We don't just go there first. Right. So it, it's really important. So there's this uh, program called uh, choose, uh, Choosing Wisely that was put in place probably about, I'm going to err on time here, maybe six years ago or something like that. But it's trying to go through that sort of thing, especially in um, academic medical centers where they're training physicians, they're training nurses, they're training others, is if I'm working on a particular um, patient doing certain procedures, is this high dollar, low value, or is it high value and I don't have to do all these other tests or other procedures? So you have to really stop and think that this is what value-based care tries to get you to. Value-based care tries to keep you at home in your community. Right. So it's providing the basic care that you need and that's how you focus on that. So you're not, I, I call it the boomerang effect. I put together a whole sort of um, cycle like this, but you don't want to go to the emergency room every time you have a sniffle. You need to have, what are you doing in the community? And that's what we need to sort of get back to. Right. The other, yeah. No, the I'm, other I'm, thing, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, um, well, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to go through that. I was fortunate enough to help plan with two other organizations, uh, Arizona State University and W.L. Gore, but through uh, healthcare, um, AVAP, Association of Healthcare Value Analysis Professionals, we were on a organizing committee and we put on a value-based care summit. We called it the inaugural. It was in November 2019. Do you think we had another one? So we had an inaugural. Out of that two and a half days that was uh, facilitated by a great group that puts together a lot of these things, and we it was an invitation-only event. So it was too much to ask payers to come and maybe a couple other groups, but we had providers we had uh, academics, we had value analysis, we had uh, folks uh, that do sort of this choosing wisely type thing. Like there's a group in Virginia that uh, is a nonprofit group and they actually look at how can we reduce those, you know, uh, high volume but low value imaging or lab tests or anything like that. And when you have focus on some of those things and you take, you know, a, a few breaths, you can actually have much, much better care close to the patient. And then when you finally get to the hospital, once you've gone through all these uh, sort of algorithms and you know, the first thing that you hear now on your physician office is if this is a medical emergency such as, then go to the emergency room or call 911, right? Right, 
Right, exactly. It's but, but every otherwise, message. <laughs> don't just head into the emergency room because it starts to clog up the entire system, including uh, OR time and a variety of things. So the most compelling pieces of information, and we wound up doing a white paper, which is available to the public in a couple of different uh, resources. And I'll put that in my little list of um, links and things. But the most compelling thing is uh, chronic illnesses. So you have to think of diabetes and heart disease and a variety of chronic illnesses like asthmas and uh, COPD and pulmonary and other things, 90% of the healthcare costs, the spending is spent on chronic illness. Where does chronic illness begin? It doesn't begin at the hospital. Right. It begins where you live. You're a consumer. So how do you get to those folks to make sure that you're getting to those first symptoms? You know, it's the diabetes, you know, is it diet? Is it exercise? Is it, you know, genetics? Is it, you know, and then you get the glaucomas and all those other after effects until you get to possibly acute kidney injury and, using in-stage renal disease, all those sorts of services. So to get the so they get there to yeah. get there early, to get there early, you're starting to lean into population health. It's population health, but it's all part of that value-based care. Where right. is the best way you can spend your dollars in an effective way to educate and make sure that the consumer what did I'm old enough to know that my I still used to have a home doctor visits when I was really really young. My grandmother uh-huh. <laughs> and those you'd have a doctor come to your house. They drive up. It was not a horse and buggy. They'd actually drive up, come into the house with their little bag and says, "Oh, you got a little bit of a sore throat there and stuff." Here's a, you know, prescription. I have a couple of here and, you know, whatever it is. You didn't even go into the office. You didn't even go to an emergency room. I don't even know if they existed then. So you kind of need to go back to what we were doing. The the other compelling thing was that the sickest 5% consumed 50% in the U.S. of healthcare resources. Wow. These things are just amazing, and they're not getting better. And medical care spending in the last year of life consumes 25% of the entire Medicare budget. Wow. So this is why Medicare wants you to do value-based care. They want you to do um, ACA. They want you to do value-based purchasing, et cetera. In that same time period, there's an average of 29 doctor's office visits the last six months of life, and half uh, of the Medicare patients in the ED in the last month of life, and then um, one out of three get admitted to the ICU, and 
one out of five have surgery. So these are all these Medicare patients, mostly last six, last month of life. It's just an amazing statistic. So a lot of it is education. It's education of the public to understand here are services, but you can't say here are services if the services aren't there. Right. So value-based care is really those outcomes. But then when they do go to a hospital or long-term care or hospice or whatever, we're doing the, the best practices than in that hospital setting. And, and you know what they are through all of these other um, avenues that you've been going down and things. Well, that's the end of part one. And part two, I can tell you already, is very interesting because it's pre-recorded and I'm already working on editing it. The other day, I spoke to a newer member of the MedTech Leaders community about his challenges. I think Barbara may have offered a solution. And using the data.cms.gov site to sort out underperforming hospitals that his products may help. Needless to say, I will be contacting him as soon as possible. Barbara is painting a picture of a healthcare system under unique pressures. Value-based care may be part of the solution, but for value-based care to work, the medtech industry has to understand value-based care and participate. Are you? Next week, we dive deeper into the subject with part two. Hope you can listen in. If you felt this podcast was helpful, share it with a friend, rate it, and or subscribe. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Now go win your week.